Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Welcome to this show, Let's Do Lunch, with me, Jenny Tishy. I'm a registered nutritionist and also the author of several cookery books, one of which was launched this week, so it's been a very busy week. Um, but I'm also an absolute foodie, and today we are going to be talking about the concept of plant-based living. Now, I am going to be joined in the studio today by Jen Roach, who runs Fearless in the Kitchen. At the moment, Jen's not here. So I will do a brief introduction to who she is and why we're going to be talking about plant-based living. Um, But Jen will do her best to get here as and when she can. So let's just crack on. So um, plant-based living is obviously a very popular topic right now. We're in February, so we have just come at the end of what is also known as Veganuary, January. It's a time of year when lots of people uh, focus because there is a uh, renewed focus on plant-based living, on living with predominantly plant-based foods, or sometimes people will go exclusively plant-based. What do we mean by plant-based? Well, another word for it is vegan. Um, But what we mean is that we would eat all foods that are derived from plants. Now, as someone made a comment recently on my podcast, um, we had the lovely Rose from Nettlebed Creamery, who, as the name suggests, runs a creamery. And she suggested during that podcast uh, that um, everything is com- comes from plants. You know, every food stuff comes from plants. So I get I get that point. But what we're meaning in relation to veganism and plant-based living is where we're eating a combination of seeds, nuts, pulses and grains, as well as an abundance of fresh fruit and vegetables. Now, you may be wondering why um, my friend, uh, and she is a friend as well as a colleague, we met first as colleagues, and now as friends, got to know each other very well. Uh, Jen Roach is coming on. Now, Jen runs Fearless in the Kitchen. Fearless in the Kitchen is now an online cookery school. Used to be an in-person one. But she runs this online cookery school uh, from her home in Berkshire, from her kitchen in her home in Berkshire. Jen has actually a great history and lots of experience in the world of plant-based living because back in the 1970s, when many people perhaps wouldn't have heard of veganism or plant-based living, um, actually became a vegan herself. Now, this is whilst Jen was living in Melbourne in Australia and I am always fascinated when we talk. We talk a lot about food, Jen and I, but I'm always fascinated about her journey. She is no longer completely plant-based, but does create lots of wonderful plant-based meals for her clients and certainly shares her wonderful ideas with other people. 
But I want to ask Jenna a little bit more about some of the challenges that she faced 1970s Melbourne. Now, I know Melbourne has a reputation for being very multicultural. And in fact, my first degree is geography. So when I look at it from a sort of geographical perspective, we can see that there were waves of different nationalities coming into Melbourne. And of course, they would have brought food cultures with them that would have been welcomed. Having lived in Australia myself, I know that many of those food cultures were greatly welcomed with open arms and a lot more open I believe than the British culture so there's also the creation of fusion but actually if we look at the orientation of that perhaps more Asian cooking it does lend itself to more plant-based even from the perspective of you know sort of more tofu and tempeh and natto and then even if we look at other cultures and excuse the pun but some of the more fermented foods um, such as sauerkraut kimchi um, kombucha they would have been more welcomed as different nations and different cultures arrived on the shores of uh, Australia so I do think that perhaps it was easier. Now, Jen won't be able to compare because she didn't live in the UK in the 1970s, but it'd be wonderful to find out a little bit more. And while we're waiting for her, you know I'm a qualified nutritionist, so I am going to talk a little bit about plant-based living from the perspective of what I do. It's a subject I talk about quite a lot. And one of the first things that I talk about, and again, Jen and I will be exploring this in further detail as and when she's here, but we talk about combining different forms of plant-based protein. You might wonder why you would think about doing that. Well, one of the things that I think is really important is if you are going to move to a slightly different way of eating, is that you feel better and that you feel healthier. There should be a good reason, a good objective for moving to a different way of eating. And one of the things and one of the pieces of feedback that I receive, and certainly when I have moved to more plant-based eating myself, is that unless I'm careful about how I combine different foodstuffs, I find myself getting rather hungrier. Um, So what I tend to do is, obviously with all of the research and homework that I do as part of my living, is I combine different sources of plant-based protein. And what I mean by that, I talked about these combinations of grains and legumes, legumes and nuts and seeds or legumes and grains and those combinations work really well now you can hear the door is opening we are now being joined by Jen. Jen I've given you a wonderful introduction um, and we've been talking a little bit about plant-based eating and Jen I, uh, I introduced you as someone that became plant-based in 1970s Melbourne um, I would love to find out a little bit about, you know, how, how that was for you and whether it was because I have looked at the sort of the immigration history of Melbourne, whether the different cultures that were arriving at that time, bringing different foodstuffs and the Aussies being so welcoming of lots of different, <laughs> lots of different cultures and their foodstuffs, I believe far more welcoming than the, the British culture, maybe doing us a disservice, but I do believe that having then lived in Australia and come back to London. Um, whether it was harder or easier, do you think? What, what were the challenges of being plant-based in 1970s Melbourne? <laughs> Hi, Jenny. Hi, uh, yeah. everyone. Um, I'm a little bit puffed. because Yeah, I you did well to get here. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I think that it was quite easy because there's so much fresh ingredients, so mm. many um, opportunities for fresh food. I think the difference now to becoming plant-based is there weren't all those options and processed foods in the supermarket. So you're under pressure to cook from scratch 
And so you had to be quite creative. And I think what I ended up doing was looking at other cuisines for that because yeah. the classic Aussie cuisines <laughs> I grew up with in the 50s, 60s, 70s um, was very like British food. Mm. Um, so I went sort of to the Middle East and um, cuisines looking at what they did with uh, vegetarian and plant-based food and also... Um, there was a lot of Lebanese migrants at the time. Yeah. So, of course, there's all the hummus and Middle Eastern falafel-type food. So that made it easy. And Japanese, I did a lot of tofu and miso back in the 70s, which people are really just discovering now. And that that gave me all those sources of protein that I was not able to get if I, once you become vegan. And I had to uh, educate myself about the foods that you were eliminating and how to get things like B12 into your diet. So mm. it was quite an exploration and it was quite a challenge and you did need to cook a lot at home because you couldn't go out and eat vegan food like you can now. Yeah, so it's quite a lifestyle change, isn't it? Because if you're going from what you describe as that sort of typical meat and two veg type diet to, to plant-based, actually you've got to change the way that you cook as well and therefore the way that you source ingredients and even more so in the 90s. 1970s because you would have been sourcing raw ingredients and then creating great flavors i mean in the early days were there any disasters <laughs> <laughs> no because i think plant-based can be quite simple mm. you can get the nutrients in a quite simple way i i don't think there's any need to complicate it um but i do think you need variety and one of my challenges even now because I'm plant-based but I do eat some fish and chicken and things mm. like that um, is to not go to the heavily carbed processed approach where it's all about big uh, all about burgers and mm. tacos and and I see so many feeds on Instagram for instance especially the young ones coming up doing all this stuff with vegan food and I look at it and I go yeah but that's sort of junk food, veganized. Mm. You know, how many burgers can you eat in a week? Or how many noodle dishes would I eat in a week? Well, not that many. I want food that actually is uh, looking like a full meal, but not like I'd go out and get a takeaway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? It, it does make total sense. And I think as well, you know, to, to your point, it's almost like if you think about a meal Whereas the, there was the mindset of the meat and two veg, whereas if you think of it as, you know, lots of different things on a plate, almost like if you think about some of the most wonderful meals you've ever had, they have been like little bits of everything, haven't they? And, and actually, we'll come on to that, but I think actually a bit of food prep up front can make your life a whole lot easier when you do move to more plant-based or exclusively plant-based living. So actually, in some ways, you know, because I was trying to compare and I know you can't make a comparison between 1970s Melbourne and 1970s London. But but I just from my own memories, you know, I'm a 70s child. Um, I just don't remember there ever being that much choice uh, as far as more plant based living uh, you know, options are concerned. I mean, we didn't even have like the health food stores that we have today. And even now I would say that, you know, more mainstream supermarkets do a lot of the sorts of foods that we would consider to be, well, <laughs> quote unquote normal. So um, in terms of the way in which that you eat today, you, you are not strictly plant-based. Um, and why is that? Well, I, I think my understanding of plant-based is that you eat mostly plants, but not only plants. Mm -hmm. um, ve vegan is 
no animal products whatsoever. Yeah. So plant-based is a little bit more flexible mm-hmm. if you want to get into definitions and sometimes labels can be def- too defining or perhaps it helps us to explain things better. Um, so my philosophy is I make veg the hero of the plate. Yeah. I, I create dishes that is about the plants and about the whole foods and the pulses and the nuts and the seeds and the dressings, you know, making tahini dressings, for instance, where mm. you're still getting calcium and protein. And then, you know, my husband is fully carnivorous, so mm. I will make what I would describe as a vegan main course and then I plonk a bit of chicken or fish on the side or a sausage or whatever he wants. And that gives me the flexibility and it changes the way I think about the vegetables and the plant-based um, foods because I, I start to want to add all the flavour and all the creativity into that, not going, hmm, i got a piece of chicken, what will I have with it? With it, yeah. That's, do you know, and actually that gives us a really good indication of how to go about doing this. I think if anybody is thinking about integrating a predominantly plant-based way of living into family life or into the, their life with a partner, then actually, you know, do celebrate the vegetables first. And if somebody in the family needs or wants some animal protein, then it can be on the I love your word plonket on the side but you know you can be you can put it on the side can't you that's a great approach and it does really then um bring out the best in in the vegetables that you're consuming I mean do you think you know the the temperate climate of Melbourne helped because you would have had a variety of different seasonal vegetables and fruits available to you Yes, in, in some ways it's not that dissimilar to here. Mm. Sydney's more subtropical, um, so they have wetter summers and milder winters. Melbourne, you do get you know zero degrees wintry days, and you do get a bit of an autumn. Um, so I, you know, my mother was very into going to the local market and buying seasonal food. So we grew up eating seasonal food, and I didn't really know any different. We didn't grow mm. it, mm. but. She was quite ahead of her time, I think, in that regard, that she every week went to the Victorian market and bought all this fresh fruit and veg and everything. And that's what we ate. So if strawberries were out of season, you didn't have them. Yeah, which is very different now, isn't it? And I think that probably, although people think it makes their life easier today, I think from a nutritional perspective, we probably need to be thinking about well where is this coming from and how nutritious is it when it's completely out of season and then in addition to that from a kind of green and environmental perspective we need to be thinking where on earth did those strawberries come from if they look that color and it's december um so this is really interesting so how would you describe the way that you eat today um mm, well where do i start (laughs) i think If I had to summarise it, Jenny, I don't think plant-based, vegan or carnivorous or any of those labels. I actually think about gut health. Yeah, interesting. And that's actually my underlying um, value, I guess Mm. I'd call it. Um, And just going back to something you said earlier, I just have to say this. We didn't have supermarkets in Australia till the 60s. Good point. And that was my cultural upbringing that, you went to the local butcher and you went to the local greengrocer. In mm. fact, my first job at school, when I my part-time Saturday job was in a greengrocer. Wow. <laughs> so you really did have a good understanding <laughs> of what's in season when. <laughs> the things we do. Um, yeah, perhaps I was laying down foundations I had no idea about. But, um, yeah, I think that now I don't really get into fussing too much about 
will I eat this, that or the other? I just think, how good is that for my gut? And mm. you're the nutritionist, mm. so I will hand over to you to explain <laughs> why that's so important. I, I've learned a lot from Jenny and other friends of mine who mm. are nutritionists, and it's fascinating because there's it's not a simple answer. People think, oh, I have a bit of kombucha, I'm doing good things for my gut. Well, yeah. I'll let you explain why it's not that simple. No, it isn't. And actually, you know, one of the things that actually I should make the point uh, about, we're talking about plant-based living today, and I think what people may or may not understand from plant-based living is that you you can incorporate more, and I think, Jen, you, you summed up quite well, you can incorporate more plants into your life. One thing, if you are suddenly changing your diet, and particularly if you're suddenly introducing loads more vegetables and your body isn't used to it, well, I'll say this now, you probably will experience some unwanted digestive side effects because our guts have become so used to this modern British way of, of eating. And actually, you know, the interesting thing is the studies show, and Jim knows I've written a book on um, the subject of gut health and, and probiotics and prebiotics. Um, but, you know, the studies show that you can turn things around within two weeks. So actually just a consistent change in your diet for two weeks, you can change things around. But, but, but you will will find if you do it too quickly you do it too suddenly um you will find that you have these unwanted digestive side effects um and actually for some people if there's a really serious imbalance in there and, and there may well be i think a lot of people live everyday life with just acceptance of digestive side effects of, of the diet that they're consuming today and that unfortunately is one in which you are probably fueling any dysbiosis that's an imbalance of bacteria in the gut because the body loves sugar and alcohol and things that are easy to turn into energy and most of us probably well most of us do consume too much sugar and probably too much alcohol um so it's really important that whatever changes we decide to make that we do decide to make them slowly and whilst i am for you know the likes of the campaigns of veganery to try and encourage people to eat more plants i think we need to do it with a modicum of balance and you know introducing things slowly and gut health is really important as a part of that consideration and actually i love your answer to that question jen because what you're basically saying is that you don't think about any labels on you on the way that you eat you think about your health and i think there's a really important message in there isn't there that we should all take responsibility for our own health because we are all individuals um so in that transition that you made because you would have put a label on yourself perhaps in the 1970s 80s when you said i'm going to be plant-based what was it you decided to change and why was it you decided to change from all plants to or all veganism to where you are today that's a good question. Um, I don't think I called it vegan. Mm. I don't think it was really called that. It was called vegetarian, if anything. Mm. Um, I I just felt that I wanted to live um, a healthier lifestyle and I met people who were vegetarians, if we want to put that label on it, and they were living it. Um, I was living in a group house with people who were living that way and so I learnt a lot from them and they were quite ahead of their time because a lot of the information that I learnt then is still relevant today about combining food to get the, the full amino acid yes. profile and um, about B12 and um, yeah, lots of stuff that I, I read now and I go, wow, I actually knew that back then. Yeah. And, um, it's been really interesting to watch it slowly become more mainstream. Um, I can't tell you which 
what flipped me, although I grew up like a lot of people in a house with heavy meat-based food mm. and my father didn't like chicken or fish, so that really did start to <laughs> say a lot of red meat growing up. And maybe I was a bit rebellious and decided I was going to rebel against all that and go the opposite. Yeah, as complete opposite. Us, <laughs> as many of us do. Um, and I guess I've come back now slightly more moderated in my approach. But, um, yeah, I thought of it more as vegetarianism, although I tried to give up cheese and I struggled with that. And I never fully gave up milk in my tea and butter <laughs> on my food, but I didn't eat a lot of those things. And, in fact, as I ate less of them, I noticed I got more of the congestion in the nose thing. Wow. Even to this day, I love cheese. I still eat cheese, but I don't eat it every day. I don't mm-hmm. even eat it more than maybe a few times a week. And the minute I eat it, I notice that at night my nose gets stuffed up. Right, interesting. And is that the same with all cheeses? The reason I ask is that, of course, you know, cheese is a fermented food, but it is a fermented food really in, in its sort of um, – unpasteurized form and that's the way in which some people don't get a reaction um but other people do so have you found any difference in the type of cheese that you can see um i probably haven't focused enough probably i mean i eat a lot of halloumi and i perhaps don't notice that as much oh interesting but i mean i don't know how much Mm. of this is real and how much of it's psychological well with halloumi of course it's not all cow i mean traditional halloumi shouldn't be any cow's milk um and goat and ewe's milk is um a different profile and actually for many humans it's closer to human milk so it's easier for humans to break down so that's quite interesting that maybe it is something to do Mm. with the um enzyme the uh, having the lactase enzyme or, or not so much. <laughs> Interesting. Well, saying Interesting. that at Christmas, I I ordered a uh, it was like um, a brie um, wreath. Oh yes, <laughs> and it was like several inches high, and I was quite stuffed up for the month of January, <laughs> getting okay. my way through the brie. So so now we are moving, <laughs> literally and metaphorically. Um, brilliant. Like Jenny, now you run. Uh, online uh, an online cookery school essentially so um we're just going to take a a short break but after that i'd love to find out a little bit about how your experiences of being plant-based fully plant-based and now to where you are today has informed what you do and and what you share with your clients across the thames valley one more time across the thames valley this this is river radio well now for some pop music try this Welcome back to Let's Do Lunch. I'm Jenny Tishi, a registered nutritionist and cookery book author, and I'm joined today by my friend and colleague, Jen Roach, from Fearless in the Kitchen, which is an online cookery school, uh, which Jen runs from her beautiful kitchen in Berkshire. And we're talking about plant-based living, partly because it's a really, really hot topic, and partly because Jen is particularly experienced in this area, and also shares some predominantly plant-based and sometimes exclusively plant-based recipes with her clientele and so I'd like to ask that question Jen you obviously have an experience have a background in being completely plant-based and then a version of being predominantly plant-based which is where you are today so how does your experience inform you know what you what you're able to share with your clients I think that I understand that people have complicated lifestyles and family issues that um Perhaps some of the women want to be vegan, but the rest of the family do not. That's a bit of a bit of a trend. Mm. Um, 
They want their kids to eat more vegetables because they just know that's good and how do I make it taste more um, appealing to them that they'll eat more vegetables in their diet. Mm. Um, so I, I am fully aware that it's not as simple as I'm just going to go vegan. I think for people it's it's a complicated decision even though they think, well, that might be healthier for me. They don't necessarily have the time and energy to research what it all means or they're working so hard, the whole concept of eating healthily and cooking meals every night from scratch is quite a stretch for them. And to do veganism properly, I do think you need to be more on the on the money of cooking at home at mm. night. But, you know, if you're working really long hours, that's all complicated. So people do tend to go to pre-prepared meals. And, mm. yes, there's a lot of options out there, even deliveries now of meal kits that are more veganised. Yeah. But I think that people are looking for inspiration and ideas and they may not want to go plant-based all week, but they'd like to maybe a couple of nights a week eat less meat and they just want ideas and, you know, what do you do beyond a curry and a chilli? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I know that you have some great answers for that and we're going to come on to that because I think one of the favourite things that I've ever witnessed, and of course I've been present at some of your workshops as well and worked alongside you, but it's when people come back again and again, which they do, and they report back and they say, you know, such and such responded that that's the best chilli they've ever had or that's the best taco they've ever had. And, and it's music to your ears, isn't it? I mean, I think it's wonderful when people come back with that. So can you share with us, I mean, who is a typical client for you yeah it's an interesting one isn't it um I mean I get men who are really keen coming Mm. and sometimes it's their wives buy it for them and I think it's Susie turning up and it's actually Jonathan (laughs) that's brilliant (laughs) (laughs) and I think that's fantastic um I think most people who come to my classes are above 30 Mm -hmm. and it can be anything up to whatever age you like, I've mm. had 80-year-olds. But I'd say there's a, a, a solid core between 30 and 60 Yeah, of people who are maybe thinking about lifestyle more and being healthier. And, you know, I get a lot of people coming to me who have been um, told by their doctor they're pre-diabetic. Wow, yeah. Or have allergies. And I, I, I think I've said this to you before, Jenny, especially being around you for so long, I know enough to be dangerous. <laughs> so um, I can show people how to cook gluten-free or to cut certain things out that they can't tolerate mm. you know, or what are the substitutes for those nuts or things they can't have or the, mm. the sesame or the whatever it is that people can't tolerate. I'm, I'm a recipe developer like you, so mm. I can create recipes to people's personal preferences and even within a class of 10 people – I can adapt it for two or three individuals who want to do it slightly differently. That's brilliant. Yeah, you've got that knowledge. And it's interesting as well, isn't it, that that uh, group of people to whom you appeal most tend to be those that are probably cooking for others as well. So again, it's the understanding of the context. You know, you made the point that when you first went exclusively um, plant-based, or pretty much exclusively plant-based, you were living in a group of people who were doing the same thing. And of course it's easier if you've got people doing the same thing alongside you. It's much harder when you've got just one or two family members that want to eat one way. And then, I mean, I know from, you know, when I do some of my uh, talks and workshops, you know, people will say, I'm cooking four different meals every evening. I mean, it's hard enough cooking one great one that's going to go down well with everyone let alone trying to cook four different ones which is really really hard and I hate hearing that but I just I understand how it happens um 
The other wonderful thing, Jen, that you do, and you share some fantastic videos via your social media, is of course you grow a lot of your own vegetables and fruit. And do you think this helps create a greater variety of different plant-based meals because you understand produce so much more intrinsically? Yes, I would say that is a factor. And I think also um, when you grow your own, you realise how much work it is and you really appreciate the produce because you know how much work and effort went into nurturing it from seedlings right through to picking it. And so you respect it. Mm. I think it's so easy to walk into a supermarket and just pick something off the shelf and then it sits in your fridge and you don't use it. I have to confess I I feel very guilty when I do that. Yes, yeah. I suffer from this shocking feeling of how can I do that to those poor vegetables that I know somebody's worked really hard to grow. Because you know how hard it is. And I'm sure it's harder with certain types of vegetable. I mean, there's certain things that you go... Right, even if it's got mould on it, I'm not throwing it away. I mean, is there something that's particularly hard to grow, do you think? That's um, mm, that's a good one. Yeah, things like fennel, I, I don't find mm. them easy to grow. And if I actually have success with something like that, I, I really want to You'll eat the it. whole thing, yeah. <laughs> and there's things like chard that seem indestructible except for deer coming into your veg patch and chewing them to a stump. But, you know, ch- Swiss chard, I can be a little bit more laissez-faire because... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got a bit extra. We can give that to the neighbours. <laughs> but that fennel, that's staying. Yeah. So so you do you have, I mean, uh, pests, you've got deer, you've got rabbits that try and yes. eat some of your so we're, we're, we're properly in the land of peter rabbit and the the uh, oh, <laughs> mr mcgregor aren't we <laughs> my, my vegetable garden is fortified <laughs> is it it's just nothing's coming in i think it's really interesting that though when you have that connection with the land and with seasons and you know it's probably the same with farmers isn't it that they wouldn't waste anything because and and because now we are very far removed from where our food comes from and I think again it just highlights the need for children to at least understand I I know there's some fantastic programs from field to fork um, programs and actually some of the supermarkets are now paying for children to understand this journey a bit better and I hope that continues because I think it's really important that we connect with our food like that. So in terms of creating great flavour, now you probably, I'd love to call you the flavour queen in my in my life. I think you do a fantastic job of creating great flavour. And as you say, celebrating vegetables as the hero of a plant-based dish or a predominantly plant-based dish. What would you say is the secret to getting great flavour? Ah, I love this question. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I cook to my own taste. Mm. So I'm very intolerant of bland food. Um, so I love to make things have a depth of flavour. And I think there, and I talk to everyone who comes to my class to the point where they've all probably heard it a million times, but if you understand the balance between salt and spice and sour and sweet and, you know, understand how to make things savoury, mm. and if you understand umami then you can pretty much create really interesting food. And people are worried about having too much salt in their diet, but I really do encourage them to salt at the start and build the layers of flavour as they go. Don't, Because if you add salt on at the end, all you're doing is making it salty. You're not actually enhancing flavour. And salt and sugar are actually both flavour enhancers. Mm -hmm. So often a teaspoon of sugar and some salt 
will make things taste incredible. Mm. And, you know, across a whole recipe for four or five people, a teaspoon of sugar is not going to blow your sugar quotient out of the yeah it's the cake and the biscuits and the etc etc that we should be worried about not the one teaspoonful of sugar in the sauce yeah yeah and i think we have so much access now to amazing pastes and middle eastern mediterranean um you know like an asian any cuisine other than british Mm. there are these incredible things you can get now that you don't have to make from scratch although Mm. i can show people how to do that but you can go and buy your harissas and your pomegranate molasses and your you know green thai chili paste Mm. and they have exactly what i just described that balance between the sweet and the savory and the salty and the spicy and yeah 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 yeah, it's interesting, actually, isn't it? We've been watching a little bit of the Great British Menu on BBC One, and a lot of the words are to do with that exact balance. You know, does it have enough acidity? Where's your acidity coming from? Is it savoury enough? The umami, you know, this fifth taste that we have. It is about getting that absolutely right. And do you think, from your perspective, obviously you're, you're building things to your taste, but how have you understood flavour? Is it just trial and error? Um, it's a good question. Um, I think I have quite a discerning palate, if I do say so myself, um, because I've always been so interested in food. Mm. So I, over the years, I guess I've really figured out what I really love, what Mm. I really enjoy and done a bit of an analysis in my own head about why do I prefer that sort of taste or that sort of food to other sort of food? So um, I think that's helped me refine and develop. And once you get into recipe development, as Jenny knows, who's written many books with lots of recipes in them, you start to get smarter about what works. Mm -hmm. And I think it's great to watch it on TV and watch the Great British whatever Mm. menu or whatever the show is, and they use all those words, but people still don't necessarily know how to go back into their own kitchen and translate that in reality or they're not confident to just put a bit of acidity in there because they're worried. Yeah. Or they think if they, you know, squeeze an entire lime all over it, it's just going to be better. Well, not necessarily. So, you know, I think if you spend a lot of time thinking about eating it and trying it and developing it and making your own food, you do develop a sense. If you're just going and buying it pre-prepared all the time and getting kits and whatever, yes, you, you at least you you're doing it from scratch but I think there's an aspect of thinking it through and maybe really trying to think what do I really enjoy Mm, absolutely it's interesting you say that because I mean I remember when the kids were much younger and you know we used to make our own um, pasta sauces to really ramp up the amount of vegetables that were being consumed and to your point about you know you had to add in order for it to be comparable to anything that they were going to have elsewhere it had to have you know the savoriness and the sweetness and a little bit of that acidity of course from the tomatoes themselves and it is, is about getting that balance right but it is it comes with experience doesn't it which is actually really important to have a play and to see what works best would you say um a lot of your food is inspired by different uh cultures uh you know you've talked about middle eastern asian would you say a lot of your inspiration comes from there yes i would i I can't imagine life without 
some of the the inspiration that we've had from famous chefs like Otlengi and he really mm. pioneered the, that style of cooking where he was bringing a lot of that Middle Eastern's approach to food into the British diet. But growing up in Oz, we were had such influxes of migrants over the years um, that I think we became very used to eating other types of cuisines and we had such an Asian influence and I think we got used to spicy food a lot earlier yeah. and maybe here, although now I think things are changing. But I, I, people who come to my classes are still quite nervous about spicy food and I always give recommendations of, you know, what would be tolerable to, you know, really getting a <laughs> kick and they're everywhere in between because... I do understand that I can go to a 10 on the chilli scale, but a lot of other Others can't. <laughs> it's really interesting, that, isn't it? Because I think, to your point, you probably were exposed to it when you were younger. Um, and I know that that certainly can help. I know when you look at certain cultures, if the children have been introduced to spice at a much younger age, of course they're going to have a great greater tolerance as they get older but also there's a genetic element to it isn't there I mean even when you look at the chili eating competitions there are some people that can go much higher up the scale than there are others I mean some people take a bite of the lightest mildest chili and they're already in a sweat and other people seem to be able to go to with the ones that might otherwise kill you you know the ones you can't even touch in Kew Gardens and they seem to be okay with it I think we've been um, a little bit disparaging of the British food uh, culture do you think there's anything within the British food culture that we can kind of rein in and say yes a great set of of plant-based uh, plant-based foods or plant-based ingredients i think that we are now producing food of such a high quality in this country i'm i just think it's in, impressive mm. how we've become i mean other than avocados and things you just can't grow here but i think we've become far more um, exciting and experimental and there's companies like Hodmetods who yes. work with British farmers to grow things like chia seeds and lentils and all these grains that we wouldn't have eaten when we were younger. Mm. And um, they are using um, the British farming community to start experimenting with different crops they may never have tried before. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. Um, I think that the meat and chicken in this country is of far better quality um, not not across the board, but you can go and buy excellent, um, beautifully um, farmed, sustainably grown, grass-fed, whatever it might mm. be, produce. And yes, there's a price attached to that, so you you eat it mindfully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, that we are, I mean, naturally uh, our climate lends itself um, to the growth of certain pulses and certain grains. Uh, I know hot models are stretching. I mean, I know now that they're growing quinoa in the UK and chickpeas in the UK, and it's, it's wonderful. And funny enough, I used some of their produce yesterday. I really had a, you know, sometimes things just take your fancy. And I had a real fancy for mushy peas, but I wanted to make it into like a sort of a, a puree. Um, and I also had um, some sardines that I wanted to use up and some mashed potato from the night before and I made these lovely fish cakes with this um, Hobmadod split pea mushy pea puree it was absolutely delicious but the other thing of course is if you know we are an island and we're surrounded by water and things like seaweed are a really important source of iodine which again you know if we are moving to a predominantly or even exclusively more so exclusively um, a plant-based diet then iodine is one of the things that we can be without and why wouldn't we I mean some of the most traditional uh, Celtic cultures you know thinking dulse and lava bread and things like that here 
consumed lots of seaweed in their day and still do some people but Mm. I think it's become a little bit um, out of fashion and I hope to see that come back in as well. So we talked about you getting some of your recipe inspiration from different cultures and where else would you say you get your recipe ideas and inspiration from? Um, I, I, it's hard to actually pin it down because I am a bit obsessive. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I read a lot. I, I have such a library of cookbooks. I look online a lot. I follow people on Instagram. Um, and that has evolved. It's been interesting when I first went onto Instagram a couple of years ago and the vegan people were all doing very similar things. Mm-hmm. And now things have sort of evolved to way more complicated, interesting uses of produce. Um, so that's been quite an education to see what other people are doing. Um, and some of them um, just tend to, as I said earlier, go to the, the junk food end and others mm. get into more um, mm, sophisticated vegan food. So mm. I just watch, read, learn, try I do a lot of experimenting myself. I was going to say, because your garden must provide some inspiration, you probably go to, to where you know, things would grow anything right. I, I wasn't expecting that to be ripe today, but I'm going to use that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think, too, I start with that. I say, okay, I've got broccoli or I've got Swiss chard or I've got tomatoes or whatever it might be. Um, what do I do with that to make it interesting mm. rather than start with a recipe and... You know, okay, not everyone thinks like that, and I fully get that. And why would you spend time worrying about it? That's why you've got people like me. So. Yeah, yeah, helping others. Yeah, come to my classes. No. <laughs> Plug from the sponsor. Um, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I guess I just constantly absorbing ideas mm. and trying them out. And mm. like everyone, I get a little bit tired of it after a while. Sometimes I have to have a little breaks because. All I'm thinking about is food and recipes and what I'm going to make. Mm. But I know I'm onto a good thing when I wake up one morning, I've just got to get up and make that today. I know, I love that feeling. Somebody asked that, asked me, that. I did a talk at a school the other day and they said, like, where do your ideas come from? I said, sometimes I'm just walking with the dog. I go, right, when I get home, <laughs> this is going to happen. Like, well, I've got other work to do, but never mind, you know, it's like these two voices going on. Um, so we're going to take a, a short break, but I'd love to uh, quiz you on your favourite plant-based recipe after this. Windsor, Windsor. Ascot, Ascot, Maidenhead, Maidenhead. Bracknell, Bracknell. Wokingham, Wokingham. Henley, Reading. Reading. Okay. Ta-da. The voice. River Radio. Of the Thames Valley. Welcome back to Let's Do Lunch with me, Jenny Tishy. I am joined today by Jen Roach, who is the founder and owner of Fearless in the Kitchen, which is an online cookery school run from Jen's beautiful kitchen in Berkshire. And Jen does a lot with plant-based recipes and predominantly plant-based living, really just helping people move to a way in which we can eat and celebrate the beautiful produce and hopefully seasonal produce as well. Um, Jen, I have to ask you, we've been talking a lot, and this show is called Let's Do Lunch, and I always feel very hungry at the end of it, and this conversation is not going to be an exception to that. Um, What is your favourite plant-based recipe? (laughs) Um, Well, most of the ones that I'm... I love the most are the simple ones, Mm. Um, and... I have to say that I struggle to get past balsamic roasted cherry tomatoes. Oh, I knew this was going to happen. (laughs) Because it's so adaptable, Jenny. You can just roast it and have it 
straight away on bruschetta or you put it into a pasta sauce or you um, put it onto hummus. So I, I love putting hummus on a plate and then putting cold hummus and then warm roasted tomatoes with a balsamic sort of thyme, garlicky. Mm. Um, and it ends up with juice and it just it's fantastic. It's a bit of a notalingi type approach mm. to life. But you can play around with that and it's adaptable because you can add other Mediterranean vegetables to it. So, you know, you can add your courgettes, you can add your aubergines and it just bakes for 20, what, 25 minutes, whatever. It's simple, it's easy, it bakes in the oven and you've got something if you make it in large enough quantities that can last for three or four days in various iterations of a meal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Peppers, same sort of thing, although with peppers I tend to use harissa as the... As the flavour base mm. for that rather than balsamic. But it goes well with both. Mm-hmm. Um, or pomegranate molasses and garlic and all those things. So I'm a big baker of vegetables that I then turn into a warm salad or a pasta sauce or something on sourdough. Yes. Or spread onto pulses or chuck in chickpeas. So once you've done the baking of the veg, you can then add whatever protein you like. Mm. And for people who are busy and working, that is the simplest way to get lots of veg into your diet during the week. Mm. Just bake up huge trays of veg, sit them in your cupboard, in your fridge, and then just adapt them to various meals. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. I have to say, Jen, I have to mention this because this is you've just reminded me one of my favourite ones of yours is your, is it balsamic figs that you do on Labneh? It's just the most divine thing. Of course, you've got the creaminess of the lovely, you've got the sweetness and acidity of the of the figs with the balsamic. It's a joy. So that's your favourite and my favourite. But what about your social media following or your clients? What would they say has been the best or the most well received or the most popular of the recipes that you've created and shared? Uh, you're going to laugh, but one of my most popular classes is my breakfasts. Oh, wow. Okay, go for it. What's it? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, you know, to just answer your question more directly first, um, Thai food, Moroccan, mm-hmm. Italian, those sorts of things, or just, um, you know, a healthy veggie-based dinner, vegan or vegetarian, they're all really popular. But people love to come and do breakfast classes mm. because they, they, they know they should be eating something, they know they need to sustain themselves through the day and not have blood sugar going up and down like a yo-yo but they just struggle with getting past you know bowl of cereal or peanut butter on toast so i show them lots of options for breakfast that are plant-based and using oats or chia seeds or um whatever um, along those lines that people can tolerate and you make it ahead and then you eat it over three or four days so they just can grab a breakfast Mm. and there's no excuse then yeah. Not eating breakfast. What was the um, overnight oats recipe that you shared when uh, we did a little live together, didn't we, about this? And you shared the most wonderful recipe. What was that you shared? Was um, it salted caramel or oh something like that? Oh, Lord. That, that was so popular. <laughs> that is a bit wicked. Um, <laughs> wicked. <laughs> that is a bit wicked. Look, you can take any nut butter paste although Mm. peanut butter is a bit strong for this but you can do your almond or cashew or pistachio any nut butter basically add some dates so that you're getting the sweetness but with the fiber and the nutrients and all the rest of it and you add a little bit of uh, uh, vanilla extract and some salt just Mm. a pinch of salt 
and you whiz all that up together and that is incredible on yogurt on your oats um you're getting all of that protein from the nuts and yes you're getting some healthy fats yeah and then in the actual overnight oats you've got the 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 whole grain type uh, uh, slow release carbs and the chia seeds, which have the omega threes. I'm saying like a nutritionist. You are, and you are. I'm going to watch my slot. The, the best thing about it for me is, and I I love making it for myself. I don't just do it for classes because I eat that for breakfast, and I don't feel hungry until well into sort of lunchtime, mm. one o'clock ish. Mm. Otherwise, if I have a piece of toast in a few hours, I'm looking for more to eat, and I end up snacking during the day, which I don't. It, my age, I don't need all those calories, <laughs> seriously. It's it's so true, isn't it? I think one of the things that I talk about quite a lot, you know, from early 90s, I think particularly as a sports person, there was this real focus on low-fat living, you know, and taking a lot of the fat out of our diet. And as we know we need fats. We need fats for our fat-soluble nutrients, but we also need fats to be satisfied. And now, uh, you know, not being fat phobic, just I should have just watched my mother. My mother's always e- always eaten butter from the dish. You know, she'll ne- she never ever has she taken fat out of her diet. I have to say, hats off to my mother because she's a great inspiration from that perspective. But you know, I think there was this such a focus, and of course, it was coaches telling us to do this, and we and we were so dissatisfied by what we were eating, and yet we carried on doing it because it was apparently the right thing to do. But to a point, I have you know toast you know thickly buttered with with peanut butter almond butter pistachio butter i had this morning um, and just that with a little bit of fruit actually sustains i mean it's tough on a friday i will admit you know when you're talking about food for an entire hour leading up to lunchtime of course i feel a bit hungry but i do like that combination and actually jen you know we we should say that we're talking about some of the sort of tips and tricks and breakfast is obviously a challenge so what else would you say are the challenges of um moving to a more plant-based diet i i think i alluded to it before there's the time factor time yeah and then there's the um uh you know whether you're working away from home or at home, that can have a big impact as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the variable family challenges. And, you know, one of the things that I do find is some mothers come to me and want to bring their teenage daughters who say they want to go vegan or mm-hmm. plant-based without much understanding and they think that they're going to lose weight. Right. Mm. And I'd hand it back to you to say why that's sometimes a bit of a flawed plan. Well, yeah, I mean, we shouldn't be looking to use um, a change of diet like moving to, you know, more plant-based as an opportunity. I mean, it can be an opportunity to improve your health um, and certainly it can reduce the amount of calories, but that shouldn't be the primary objective. This should be about getting greater health. You know, as far as a nutritionist is concerned, it is about improving health and it suits certain people and it doesn't suit certain other people and I think anybody doing it should do it with some knowledge actually and I mean on to that you know um, question there are potential deficiencies you know there are areas that one can become deficient in if we move to exclusive um, plant-based eating we've talked about proteins and actually one of the things that you 
greatly described genesis combining of legumes and grains or grains and nuts and seeds or nuts and seeds and legumes because that was something that you were doing back in the 70s and it still applies today and there's some classic examples of that being things like you know your hummus with your oat cakes or your um chickpea curry with your brown rice etc etc and actually um i was doing a, a talk the other day and a lady uh, of indian origin said that's what my grandmother always told me you know you always have these two sorts of protein combined so it's something we've known for a long time other areas you know that you want to be focusing on of course a fiber uh, which again if you go to your sort of vegan junk food alternatives your bacons and your burgers you might well be without fiber and if you go to things like legumes and, and whole grains you won't be and certainly when you include those alongside lots of different fruits and vegetables calcium should be a consideration iodine i've mentioned but of course we can get that from both iodized salt but hopefully also sea vegetables including things like nori or dulse um iron should be definitely consideration talking about specifically teenagers um teenage girls are renowned for being low in iron and we know that we can get iron from sources such as dark chocolate dried fruit quinoa tahini soya based foods legumes and of course leafy greens and choline which we typically get from things like egg yolk we can um, get from other foods including broccoli bananas those legumes and quinoa again and b12 and b12 is something that you include in in some of your dishes and the form of nutritional yeast isn't it jen um can you describe how you include that or perhaps a, a, a context or a recipe that you include that in sure it's i mean some people think of it like a parmesan substitute mm. because it does have that slightly cheesy um texture and flavor yeah um but it, it it's an umami taste so mm. you can just round out the flavor of something with with nutritional yeast, and it's um, giving you that B12, as does Vegemite and uh, Marmite. Yes. Oh, sorry, I showed my Aussie roots. Yeah. <laughs> Why going Vegemite first? Yes. <laughs> But I think Marmite has it too, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. And you can get, um, now, thank goodness, you can get yeast-free, uh, sorry, gluten-free yeast extract um, spreads. So those are really helpful for people that can't have um, gluten but do want to eat, you know, the likes of the Marmite and get that umami. I think too, Jenny, going back to that other question about, um, you know, getting what you need from the food but also perhaps not having enough knowledge of what you're doing if you just suddenly embark on a vegan or plant-based diet um, there's a lot of carbs in it mm. and people think oh I'm getting my protein through my chickpeas and my tofu and my this and that but the pulses and the grains uh, yes they have protein in them but they also have carbs mm. which lean um, chicken and, and meat does not mm. so cut that out you actually um, may find that you're putting on weight mm-hmm. and not understanding thing. I'm getting plenty of protein. Um, why am I putting on weight? And I actually sometimes find this myself. I have to just think of it as um, a little bit of portion size as much as what I'm eating because, you know, you eat a whole tub of hummus, that's a lot of calories mm. and there's quite a lot of carbs and, and fat in that as mm. well as, you know, good protein. So... It, it's not a simple answer to a complex problem. No, exactly. And I sort of um, intimated earlier on that genetically we're all slightly different and some of us are more uh, suited to a higher carb diet and some of us are more suited to a higher protein diet. And if you are suited to a higher protein diet, it's very difficult to do to go 
completely vegan and completely plant-based without there being some side effects. And we do need to think about that because you could end up moving to a plant-based diet and then ending up with poorer blood figures ultimately, you know, high sugars in your blood, cholesterol even, if you don't do it correctly. So it is about understanding what you're doing. Jen, as usual, it's been wonderful to talk to you today. Um, If people want to find out more about you, what you do, and to get some more inspiration from you, where would they find you? On my website at uh, www.fearlessinthekitchen.co.uk. I'm on Instagram as Fearless in the Kitchen and Facebook, and I regularly put recipe ideas and and, uh, inspiration on those. And um, I run my classes on the weekends for busy working people and often during the evenings of during the week as well. Brilliant. When's your next one? Uh, tomorrow and well. then another one on Sunday. Oh, wow. Okay. Are there <laughs> any spaces left? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and what are they going to be? What's the theme? Uh, tomorrow is healthy lunches and mm-hmm. that's specially designed for people who, um, a lot of people who work at home and mm-hmm. still want to have a healthy lunch, but they're busy. Yeah. Just because they're working at home doesn't mean they're busy. So I show them ideas for plant-based lunches with good protein, keep them going so they don't have the 4 p.m. slump, but also things they can make ahead and just eat over the week. Yeah, yeah. And Sunday we're doing ve- – um, no, it's not vegan freezer meals, but I've got a vegan freezer meal um, series coming up where you basically create the recipe and all the ingredients – raw mm-hmm. and put them in your freezer and then you put them in the slow cooker when you're brilliant. ready to cook brilliant that's wonderful jen so fearless in the kitchen is where people can find you online right we're on to our quick fire questions um very very quick fire questions what would be your final meal death row meal oh wow <laughs> oh wow see this is the problem with people <laughs> like me i don't have favorites because i love so much food <laughs> It might depend on the mood I'm in. Okay. Uh, who's your favourite chef? Oh, my Lord. You're really putting me on the spot. <laughs> I, I'd say um, Donna Hay from Australia and oh, yeah. Stephanie Dowick, who's an Aussie chef, and mm. Ottolenghi here. Yeah, that is great. Um, yeah, Stephanie, I've not heard of. I'll have to check her out. Favourite restaurant? Oh, I, I have a bit of a love affair with... Um, God, I've forgotten his name. Sorry, Jenny. It's not an intense love affair then. No. Would you just call him lover? It's a a Michelin star chef in London. Well, we'll find out. We'll come back to this. Watch this space. Um, Who would you invite to your fantasy dinner party if you had four guests? I really am putting you on the spot here. She didn't warn me about this. No. I just want to say. I mean. I think Anybody who's written a book, because I have great admiration for people who write books, (laughs) I don't care what the subject is, the fact they've sat down and thought about their subject matter and spent time articulating that is of great, um, I'm always very impressed by that. Yeah, do you know, I have to say one of the people that I think if, if you are interested in this subject and who does write great books, it's Michael Pollan, P-O-L-L-A-N. Have you read any of his books, Jen? No. Highly, highly recommend. He's just come out with his latest one, which is Your Brain on Your Brain on Plants. But he's the one that coined the phrase, um, you know, eat, what was it, eat mostly plants. I can't remember the phrase. Look, I'm now finding myself stuck in it. But anyway, <laughs> I 
I will come back to you on that too. <laughs> so Jen's favourite restaurant, Jen's favourite chef and the Michael Pollan book. Um, right, brilliant. Mar- I felt Marcus Waring. Marcus Waring, yes. He's great, absolutely great. Um, Jen, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, I know you, you managed to get here and we have done, I think, a great job of covering plant-based living. If you want to find out more information, Jen Roach uh, goes by Fearless in the Kitchen. You can find her on all social media channels. Um, well, particularly Instagram and Facebook, where you'll find lots of inspiration. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening today. And I will be back next week. Take care. Thames Valley. One more time. Across the Thames Valley.